Today's message has been brought to you by Faith Family Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, visit faithfamilybillings.com. So we are going to go into the how and why of worship. Now, me being me, I love to know why, and I love to learn everything there is to know about anything. So when I was like, oh, well, you know, I'll just teach on worship, and we'll go into, like, a history of biblical worship. Yeah, it was about that exciting, too. (laughs) It's actually really, really fascinating because biblical worship is so deep. There is so much to gain from knowing and understanding how they did it, when they did it, where they did it, and why. So actually, I was ready to teach that sermon last Sunday, or this past Sunday, and I was sitting in that seat and listening to Mark, and God goes, that's not your sermon. I was like, oh you're gonna say that because I'm ready and he's like I know so we're gonna go back to the very beginning the Lord took me to John 4 verses 23 through 24 it says but an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for such people the father seeks to be his worshipers God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So tonight, instead of a biblical history of worship, we get to witness true worship. And that's my obedience in saying, okay, God, we'll scrap the message. So I went to um, Bethel Music College. I graduated, and they had us read a book. It almost single-handedly changed my entire view of music, worship, and worship's place within a church. So Ray Hughes is the author, and the book is called The Sound of Heaven, The Symphony of Earth. He wrote it to show musicians and worship leaders the impact of what so many of us often find common and normal. So please pick it up. It's a great book. But... I want to share the part that quite literally changed my life and made my understanding of my place as a worshiper much more significant than just, I have a good voice. I took, what, 10, 11 years of piano lessons so I can play a keyboard. You know, I've got a good ear for music, so we'll serve the Lord. No, it is so much more than that. There is a gift in each of us to worship, whether it's on a stage with a band or not. So worship is defined in the Oxford Dictionary as the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. I have one major problem with that definition. It's the dictionary. I'm not going to argue with it. I'm just going to point out that as a Christian, worship is not a feeling. Worship is the furthest thing from a feeling. Worshiping in spirit and truth does not come from if I feel like it. If I feel like that song 
is going to minister, if I feel like that particular tune is going to do anything, that is not worship. That's a skill. It's not worship. Worship comes from our obedience and our faith and trust in God, who delights in us. I have loved praise and worships as long as I can remember. I grew up in a large family, and my dad listened to southern gospel music. So I had everything from the Gaither Vocal Band to Keith Green to Natalie Grant to, oh gosh, mercy me, point of grace. I mean, I was all over the spectrum to the point where, you know, you listen to Lecrae or Andy Minio, and, you know, you get to bouncing in your car, and you're like, yeah, this is good worship. It is. It is. I might not hear every last word, but I know they're glorifying the Lord. It's not worship in and of itself, though. Just because you sing the right words, just because you have all the right things in place, and you can sing it in church does not make it worship. So, How? Do we worship in spirit and truth? The first mention of worship in the Bible is in Genesis 22. When Abraham went up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac as an offering before the Lord. The Hebrew word that they used right here is shakat. And it literally means to bow and put your face to the ground. It was a way of signifying that you were putting your head beneath your heart because you were literally bent all the way over it's hard to do in heels but it's possible it was a way of acknowledging where you came from you know how they say you know from dust i came from dust to i return i return this this worship that abraham was giving and displaying before the lord was his way of humbling himself and saying, I know where I came from. I know my purpose. I know my place. I know my creator, and I know why he made me. It's, a, it's an act of yielding to our original purpose. Our original purpose, yes, is worship. But it's not a worship like we would think in like a secular religion, I'll say that. It's not about feeding an egotistical God or feeding his need with our worship. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to sing up here. He doesn't need our shouts. He doesn't need, you know, the wild dance and the parties. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need the smoke. He doesn't need the lights. He doesn't need it. He wants it. He wants you and I to worship in spirit and truth. He wants you and I to sing the song. He wants to hear from us. <clears throat> so why? Why does he want it? Because God is our father. He wants our worship because in moments of worshiping in spirit and in truth, he has our undivided attention, and we have his. If you think about it for a moment, if you are with someone you love, and you are talking to that person one-on-one, -on -one, they have your undivided attention. 
If you are trying to get to know someone, you are talking to them. You're looking them in the eye. You're interacting. You're not just standing there and being like, okay, I'll get to know you now. That's not going to go very far. It wouldn't be very fun. So to have his undivided attention, what does that look like? Having his undivided attention is the purest expression of love because the God of the entire universe, the creator of all, who is above all, stops and gives his undivided attention to you, to me. I don't know about anybody else, but when Paul and Silas were in that prison, does anybody think they wanted to sing songs? Probably not. It was probably dark, probably stunk. There was probably a lot of noises going on, and the last thing anybody thought they would hear would be psalms. But goodness gracious, they got God's undivided attention, just like that. God's in heaven and his throne, and the angels and the elders are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. But what he wants to hear is someone's undivided attention praising him. It is not about the right words, the right rituals, the, the right set of songs to get us in the mood. It is our undivided attention. Your undivided attention to the Lord is an expression of love. His undivided attention towards us is the purest expression of love. Because it's in worship that we see his love is a gift. And it's not a reward to be earned. There's nothing you and I can do in worship or outside of it that's going to earn us his love. We can't do it. Now, I will say that um, music is amazing. I love it, if you can't tell. I mean, I could do a lot of things, but um, I'm pretty sure I would die penniless and happy if I could sing for the rest of my life. Thankfully, I don't have to. <laughs> music is an amazing tool, and the Lord uses it mightily. There's a whole science behind it, and I really, really wish like I had the time to go into each and every segment of it. Because what happens in sound with the notes and tones and vibrations is phenomenal. Guys, do you know that the Hebrew doctors used to prescribe psalms for certain sicknesses? Because the certain vibrations that you had within that song, whether it was low or high or, you know, had a certain resonance to it, that little ringing sound, that's a resonant. They prescribed it to heal ailments. So I'll tell you a secret. You all can know my secret now. So when Pastor Sean's praying up here, and he's praying for, like, physical healing, and he's talking about, like, broken bones or, you know, heart problems or back pain, I play on the low segment all the way down here in the bass because those are the tones that move your physical flesh. Now, when he's talking about spiritual, you know, uh, awareness or clarity of mind or, or peace, I play up in the high because those higher pitches 
disrupt the frequency in your brain. It's amazing stuff. Go read the book. That's all I'm going to say. He explains it all. Where was I? Hold on. I got distracted. All right, so I'll say music cuts to the quick. It cuts just like that because you can hear a song and instantly be transported somewhere else. It takes hours of study and work to get to that place, and you might not even scratch the surface. But you can't have one without the other. Worshiping God solely for the feeling that comes along with it is just as dangerous as worshiping God because that's what you're supposed to do. Look at tithe and offering. I mean, you're supposed to tithe, but God doesn't want it unless you want to give it. God created music. He loves music. He loves songs and singing. It's like, you know, I said with Paul and Silas, the book mentions that God sings bass because when Paul and Silas started to sing, he, you know, makes the point that God enjoyed it so much that he started singing bass and, you know, the earth shook and the prison doors flew open and all the chains fell off. God sings bass. I'll be sure to tell I'll have to tell my dad, because dad sings bass too, so he can join God. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that God takes delight in us, and he rejoices over us with joyful songs. So don't you think he takes great delight in hearing our songs? You and I were created to create. It's not about production. It's about partnership, about covenant with God to accomplish what he has in store for us. The God of the universe enthroned himself on our praise, on our worship. So can you imagine how ridiculous, how preposterous it looks and how serious it is when religion and pride tries to make worship a means of manipulation and control. I mean, we can look at it, it, not necessarily Christianity religion, but we can look at a number of secular songs, even Christian ones that manipulate all the right words, all the right tones to get you to feel something so that you react out of emotion. Don't mistake me. I am not grabbing my pitchfork and torch. I am not marching over to every mega church and pounding down the doors and going after their worship leaders and shaking my hand and saying, you can't use smoke. You can't use the lights. I mean, just throw the words up on there and let people sing. No, because everything has its place. I enjoy worship services where there's fog machines and lighting controls and it's almost like a concert. It's fun. It's absolutely fun. The Lord enjoys it. It's still fun. Everybody's having fun worshiping. We, on the other side of it, we can't stand there solemn and, okay, where are the words? I can only, I can only read those words. I can't, I'm just not feeling it. You have to have all of it. If people need lights and smoke to get into the mood, go for it. But don't let it be your only means. So, I simply want to convey 
an understanding that we have to be more aware of God in our worship than what is going on around us. Our bodies are flesh. They exist in a natural realm, and they respond to the environment that they're in. Likewise, our soul is always more aware of our self, our feelings, our emotion, than it is aware of our spirit. So, we cannot allow the feeling, the feeling of worship to use our soul to deal with things of the spirit. You have to sharpen your spirit. You have to sharpen your faith. You have to mature. You can't just go to church and hope that the worship leader sings a song you really like because that's when you feel God. Guys, there's songs that we sing here. I don't enjoy them. If I'm being completely honest, I don't enjoy some of them. But do you know, I pick out the music. I could very well just be like, nope, not doing that one. Oop, I can't reach that pitch. We're not doing that one. I really hate that chord, so we're not doing that one either. But if the Lord's saying, Joy, you need to do that one again. I can't reach that pitch, Lord. He goes, I know. And you go flat every time, but... I said to do it. Am I more aware of what his spirit is trying to do? Because maybe there's something in that song that needs released over the body. Rather than, yep, I hit every note. And the Lord's going, yep, but you missed all of them. Went right over their heads. You got that note. Good job. But every last one of them walked away without a revelation of who I am. Don't walk away from worship without a new perspective of the Lord. And it's hard. It's hard to do it every time. But you have to get to that spiritual maturity. Don't get robbed of your spiritual revelation by letting your soul do all the worshiping. So, that is how. But, God's not interested or solely interested in you knowing everything about how worship is supposed to take place and when and where. So what else is there? Why do we worship? Well, besides the fact God told us to, there it goes again. Are we, are we doing it just because we're supposed to? Do we sing, you know, here at this church, do we sing three songs, one fast, one medium, one slow, or maybe one fast, two slow, depending on what Joy decides and if she can keep tempo? My musicians got it. But why? Worship can bring us into the greatest sense of euphoria. I have never felt the way I do when I'm in worship, apart from worship, ever in my life. When I was younger, I can remember some of the first times going into it, and yes, it was at a loud Christian concert, you know, and it's dark, and you're sitting by yourself, and it's loud, and there's thousands of people around you, and you feel so significant because God is talking 
to you. Worship allows us to express our love for the Lord and to know his love in return. So what happens when we start to use worship as a means to an end? What happens when we start worshiping for the feeling rather than seeking the face of God? There's a danger in treating it as common and using it as our means of self-importance. It's self-serving worship, and that's so dangerous. Because you can go through an entire service, because <clears throat> I've done it. You can go through an entire service and, you know, shout at the right times and, you know, yay, God, I feel nothing. And he's going, it wasn't about your feeling anyway. But am I treating it common? I go to church and I worship because that's what I do at church. Rather than, I'm on my way to work, which, by the way, for me is church, guys. I'm on my way to work. I can use that time to worship. Or I am usually by myself. We've got construction contractors in here. You guys are pretty much by yourself all day. Do you know you guys can worship all day? All day. School students. Do you know you guys can Worship all day? It's not about the where, but why are you worshiping? So, treating worship as common, yes, is dangerous. And we have a really good example of it. Does anybody remember Yuza? Let's go to 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 7. This is what you don't do in worship. This is when the Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines and then given back because they didn't want it anymore. Because things were happening, and they were not pleasant things. So, David wanted to go get the ark. And he wanted to bring it to Jerusalem. Because it was where the presence of God resided. Who wouldn't want that in your city? But rather than searching the way to do it right, he just, let's just read. <clears throat> now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went to the people who were with him, and all the people who were with him, to Baal Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Yuza and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the cart of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. 
Meanwhile, David and the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir, wood, and with lyres, harps, and tambourines. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Yuza reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Yuza. And God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. We can look at it and be like, oof. I mean, you know, it wasn't a bad thing. He was just trying to make sure the ark didn't fall. He was just trying to make sure that, you know, the Ark of the Covenant didn't break. The Ark of the Covenant was in Abinadab's house. That was Yuza's home. He was around it. And I'm pretty sure you probably read up on how to take care of it. You have the, the item that is holding the presence of God. By the way, the Ark of the Covenant was not big. It was this little thing. It became common to him because he stopped associating that with the presence of God. He took it for granted, and he felt for a moment that it was his responsibility to save and to keep the integrity of God rather than acting in obedience. And we see where that got him. Fried by the side of the road in front of everybody. Aren't you thankful for Jesus? Because that's the old covenant. That's the Old Testament. And you know, God was really angry at him. How many times have I acted out of my own strength? How many times have I presumed that without my assistance, without my intervening in, you know, delaying or stopping a disaster from happening on stage and, oh God, you know, we can't mess up on that song or your presence is just never going to get here. <laughs> Guys, it happens. Like this is, this is, this is not me making a funny. There are times when you are tempted to sit up there and be like, okay, maybe we should do that chorus one more time. They sing a lot louder on that one then. Do you get what I'm going with this? God needs my help rather than me going, okay, Lord, where do you want me to go? I'm following you so that I can lead. Where do you want me to go? While <laughs> there is redemption for the sins of treating God as common, for treating him like he needs our help. I don't like to say that because it gets too <clears throat> close to home. There is redemption, but there's also harvest to reap. And that harvest can look like fear, frustration, lack of purpose. How do I know this? Because I've done it. You end up sitting there telling God what he's going to do and how you're going to serve him rather than sitting before him and seeking his face. It doesn't work. There is nothing my flesh can do to make God pour out the sound of heaven on us. 
I have to obey him. You have to obey him. God is not looking for how much you know. He's looking for your obedience. So, let's look at the story of Joshua. By the way, it's one of my favorites. So we're going to go to Joshua 6. Joshua judges Ruth. We're going to start in verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, see, look, look guys, I have given Jericho into your hand with its kings and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do, for, you shall do so for six days. Take your biggest guys, get them ready, and walk around. Okay. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make the long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. So, Joshua was given the plan of attack. It sounds really silly. How many millions of people did he have to rally to listen to tactics that made no sense? It wasn't arm yourself and go get, your, go get your, the biggest guys and give them the biggest swords and, you know, intimidate the enemy. It was get them ready and go walk. Joshua didn't hesitate. He obeyed quickly. His obedience took the form of mobilizing the entire nation. Again, guys, guys these are millions of people walking around the city. Millions. The nation of Israel then responded in obedience. Even if they had questions, they moved to obey the Lord. Also, I want to point out that the Lord told his people to shout. He asked them to do something more than just walk, but, you know, hold it all in for six days. And then on the seventh, he told them to shout. So there's a couple of Hebrew words for that. There is Shabbat, which means to address in a loud, stern, authoritative voice. It's not the word God used. God used the word ruah, which means, according to the Strongs, to split the ears with sound, as blowing an alarm or crying out. Additionally, does anybody know what the breath of God that he breathed into man at creation was called? It's his ruach. It is his life-giving breath. And he told the people, 
This is how I want you to shout. And they obeyed. God's people walked in obedience and released a battle cry of faith. <laughs> Man. Oh. And that release of obedience and faith moved God. And then he joined in the shout. He added his super to their natural. And the supernatural happened because Jericho fell flat. It did not stand a chance. And it, just like our enemy doesn't stand a chance. Our worship has to be out of obedience and faith. Our worship has to be a response. It cannot be a reaction. You cannot react to what's going on around you. You can't react out of what you feel like. Ray Hughes in his book explains that we have to be the thermostat, not the thermometer. We have to respond we set the atmosphere of our spirit in response to the Lord rather than reacting to our favorite lyrics of our favorite songs. If we are simply offering a feeling or expression of reverence, I would argue that we are definitely not going far enough. We are worshiping our creator, our provider, our redeemer, our closest friend. We have to seek after the Lord with our whole heart because seekers become finders. Worship has nothing to do with ritual. God doesn't want rituals. Guys, we could do worship at the end of the sermon and it would mean just as much. We could have no worship and say, go worship at home. It means just as much. God wants relationship. He wants fellowship. Worship has everything to do with knowing who God is and who we are in him and through him. So, what's the how and why? Go back to the beginning. It's our response. It's our obedience and our act of faith to the Lord rather than a reaction of what we feel and when we can respond, then we begin to see his glory revealed in our lives and in every situation that we face. That's worship, guys. I love it. It can get messy. It can be super smooth, super easy. And sometimes, guys, it's like pulling teeth. And I'm not talking about here. I'm not talking about leading a worship set in a church. I'm talking about laying in my bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, seeking the face of God because I need answers. It's about seeking God's face for what he wants for my life so that my life becomes an act of worship so that my purpose in life is not lost on what I get done. It's not about a production. It's about a partnership. So am I doing it with the Lord? That's worship. Because worship doesn't have to be a worship set. Worship can be the job you go to. 
Worship can be the school you get done. Worship can be changing diapers. Worship looks different. So with that, go back to the beginning. Because God's looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. If you would like more information about Faith Family Church, including service times and location, visit faithfamilybillings.com.